0: Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my honor to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week James Kilgore. James Kilgore is the author of a wonderful new book called Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. James Kilgore is a writer, researcher, teacher, and social justice activist, and he has published three of the six novels that he wrote during six years in prison. He currently lives in Urbana, Illinois. James Kilgore, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Morning, David. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, very glad to. This is a a wonderful book. It's very accessible. It's a paperback. It's an introduction to an incredibly important topic. So I hope it is spread far and wide. Uh, and you 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 start out with the basics, and I guess we should start there as well. Uh, how how rapidly and how big has has mass incarceration grown? Can you compare it to the past and to the rest of the world and so forth?
1: Well, in some ways, mass incarceration in the United States is incomparable. It's a it's a process that's taken place on an incredible scale, taking the incarcerated population in 1980 from a level of less than a half a million to over 2.2 million today, taking the number of people on parole and probation from under half a million in... in uh, is nineteen seventies to something on the order of seven million today taking the budgetary expenditure on corrections from somewhere around six billion to eighty billion dollars annually over that same period so it really has put the united states into the category of outlier in terms of the way in which it deals with criminal justice or in the way in which it criminalizes a much broader range of uh, behavior than any other country so we have 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's prisoners. We incarcerated at a rate, something on the order of 10 times the rate of other industrialized countries like Japan or Norway. And about four times the rate of a country like the United Kingdom, which is really kind of second among industrialized countries in terms of incarceration rates. But nothing compares to the
0: United States in terms of incarceration. It's it's striking for a a society and a government that is so stingy at spending money, I mean, on anything other than the military, that, uh, I mean, the statistics you cite in this first section of the book, New York spends more on incarcerating someone than it costs to attend Harvard. Uh, I mean, first of all, how is that possible? What is the money spent on? Uh, And and secondly, how how can we as a society be moving our resources in that direction? It seems insane.
1: Well, I think the motivation for spending so much money is largely based on, on fear. And I think the notion of fear has been used to kind of ramp up the security and policing functions of the state at the expense of welfare provision at the expense of public education, at the expense of mental health, and so forth. Now, what does $60,000 go to? Uh, where is it spent on a person that's incarcerated? Well, I mean, there's huge debts to be paid off um, for the actual construction of these facilities. These facilities that were built in the 1990s, the sort of state-of-the-art facilities, can cost somewhere around 150 to $200 million each but then we find that there's a range of employees particularly prison guards in states like New York and California who have organized themselves and really gained incredible levels of of wages and salaries so that we find in California I believe in 2010 there was more than 4000 prison guards who earned over $100,000 a year largely based on doing all kinds of overtime scams and so forth but it's really become a cash cow for people who in many cases really don't have any marketable skills in any other job category.
0: And, and, that's, and that's literally for guarding people in cages, right? I mean, the, the idea that they are rehabilitating the prisoners or educating them or training them has sort of gone out the window. So those huge salaries are not paying for those types of skills, right?
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I sometimes get into debates with people because I refer to prison guards and other people say, no, they're correctional officers. And in my experience, there's very little that's correctional about what they do. They're simply paid to guard and to also secure the facility. But not only does this apply to prison guards, but it also applies to parole and probation agents. Historically, parole and probation agents thought of themselves more as social workers and their job when people came out of prison was to help them find opportunities sometimes to provide them with equipment to start up a small business or loan opportunities, things like that, get them into training programs. Nowadays, the function of parole and probation is largely one of policing. We find that parole agents in some states carry sidearms. When my parole agent came to visit me in my house, he was packing a 45 on his hip. He had no real advice for me about getting employment or getting any other kinds of services, but he was very intimidating. And the other thing is that in some states now people are even having to pay to be on parole, so you may be paying 30 or $40 a month for the service of being policed.
0: You list in one of the charts in the book uh, absurd ways in which someone on parole or, or probation can land back uh, in, in prison, including you know, having dinner with someone else who's been convicted of a felony, riding an unlicensed bicycle and so forth. I mean, is the, is the mission, is the, is the job assignment of officers really to, to re-incarcerate people?
1: One must wonder, I don't think anyone's given them a formal order or a quota of how many people to reincarcerate, but the way in which the rules for what people call technical violations have been put in place, that is, violations for non-criminal activity, like the kinds of things you you just mentioned, failing to report a change of address, m- missing a meeting with your parole agent, and so forth, all of these have become reasons to put people back in prison instead of reasons to give them other kinds of sanctions or to try to get to the bottom of why a certain kind of behavior is is taking place. So we've seen in some states up to a third of the people who are admitted into the prison system in any given year are people going in for parole violations. So it does become like a revolving door, and it feels a little bit, to use a commercial model, like, you know, you're getting your customers to come back again and again and again.
0: And is what's driving that popular support as a result of whatever sort of propaganda or, or useful information, uh, or is it corruption? I mean, you end up looking towards the end of the book at profiteers. Uh, I mean, are, are prison profiteers uh, a particularly offensive minor bit in this story, or, or is that the driving force here?
1: I think the prison profiteers are co-partners with, with those who have a political agenda to drive mass incarceration. So on the one hand, we have the departments of corrections, we have law enforcement and and police forces that have gained huge amounts of power and huge amounts of resources through policies like the war on drugs, through policies like the war on on immigrants, and so forth. So they have gained tremendous amounts of political power, and they have also been able to siphon away some of the influence of the more social welfare sectors of the state so i think there's a political agenda there and that's also complemented by certain politicians whose constituencies are in rural areas which is where the overwhelming number of new prisons have been built we found that the construction of new prisons has been cited in largely poor deindustrialized rural areas overwhelmingly white in population but these have become an election ploy for politicians from these areas to make promises to their constituency to deliver prisons, which will deliver jobs. But having said that, once the prisons and jails are up and running, or the money has been allocated, then comes the frenzy to access the economic and profiteering opportunities. So there we have a range of people from private prison operators like the Corrections Corporation of America to service providers like companies like Securus Technologies that made $114 million last year off prison phone charges, and a whole host of food, health service, and other service providers whose profit lines really depend on incarceration and increasing
0: incarceration. You you mentioned the, the political and profit angles to this incarcerating of disproportionately African-American and Latino urban uh, convicts in uh, rural areas with white populations and white prison guards Um, but you bring up in the book an interesting uh, question which uh, is not often discussed I think which is what has been the impact uh, of this uh, sort of racial configuration of prison guards and prisoners on race relations uh, in US society
1: well, I think it contributes to, you know, an accentuation of of racial divi- racial divisions. I mean, essentially, in a lot of these small rural towns, virtually the only people of color that the majority of white people come in contact with are people that they meet in the prison yard or their families coming to visit them. So these people because of mass incarceration, this stigma attached to these people uh, to those of us who have felony convictions is considerable and I and I think that 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 uh, feeling of disdain that feeling of, of overt racism is evident in in institutions in prisons and it's perpetuated and I think California is a particularly pernicious case where the populations historically have been racially segregated by the administration. So, for example, in the state prison where I was in California, I was not allowed to share a cell with a person from another race. The administration banned that. And even the physical spaces of the institution were racially segregated. So the prison yards, there was a pull up bar for whites and a pull up bar for blacks and so forth. So this racial segregation in prison, this you know racial animosity is promoted both at the at the institutional level but then it spills over into, into the community.
0: Yeah, because those prisoners, for the most part, are coming back out, not rehabilitated, but retrogressed to uh, behaviors we thought we had outgrown. Uh, we're speaking with James Kilgore, author of a book that everyone should get a copy of right away. It's called Understanding Mass Incarceration. Um, the, the, I, I want to quickly ask about what you think uh, in terms of the the language of war, a war on crime, and the comparison to, to actual war, because this sort of racism, this sort of hatred and fear-mongering that we've talked about seems inherent in both War and the so-called war on crime, uh, and you you cite uh, you you give space in the book to the the arguments that scholars have put forth in favor of mass incarceration, but they seem to have nothing to do with rehabilitation or restoration. Rather, it's it's about expressing moral condemnation uh, and uh, incapacitating people. Uh, even though the records, correct me if I'm wrong, seems to suggest that uh that mass incarceration uh does not in fact uh reduce the thing it seeks to condemn just as the wars abroad don't reduce violence and terrorism but rather fuel them uh, is is this a, a fair comparison
1: I think that's a I think that's a great comparison David I mean the the rhetoric of war has basically converted the you know the streets particularly the inner cities communities of color into areas that are dif- that are seemingly made for combat that the, that the people that live in these communities are somehow treated as if they are enemy combatants rather than rather than citizens or residents of a community that need to be worked with so we've seen the rhetoric of war has led to the excessive militarization of police forces we've seen a massive expansion of SWAT squads for example um, in by by 1997 where SWAT squads really only started in the 70s but by 1997 90% of cities over 50,000 population had SWAT squads the the SWAT squad raids increased from 3,000 a year to 30,000 a year from the mid 1980s to the mid 1990s and we had a pouring in of M-16s, M-14s, armored personnel carriers, a whole lot of military hardware being given to police, in many cases free from the federal government in order to carry out this so-called war on drugs. So instead of police being there to protect and serve, the notion of of promoting public safety became one, really, of acting like an occupying force. And... Um, the you know the consequence is that we have this very unequal enforcement, for example, of drug laws, where hotspots in predominantly black and Latino communities get heavily policed, whereas college campuses, for example, which almost anyone would acknowledge are quite a heavy reservoir of drug. Uh, user, users and drug possession are virtually ignored in the, in the war on
0: drugs. One thing that is shut out of this sort of debate usually is the voices of the people actually impacted, the prisoners, uh, and uh, I appreciate that in this book you sought to include the points of view and, in fact, the voices of prisoners. Can you talk about uh, the role of that sort of writing in your book?
1: well i think if we're going to change this system of mass incarceration we need to hear the voices and we need to have some uh... extensive participation in these campaigns of people who have been incarcerated of people whose family members have been incarcerated of people whose communities have been directly impacted by this and so a lot of academic studies of mass incarceration don't really search out those voices they tend to refer to other academics so i went out of my way as somebody who's been incarcerated myself to look for voices of people like robert salim holbrook a man doing life in prison for a conviction for a crime that he committed when he was sixteen i I'm now incarcerated in pennsylvania i looked for the voice of the daughter of Sheronda jones who got a who got a mandatory life sentence for uh, for minor drug sales and her daughter was eight years old at the time and she talks poignantly about what it feels like to have her mother ripped out of her life at at eight years of age, and then to realize that the only way she's ever going to actually be see her mother outside of prison is when they carry her out in a coffin. So these are these are very touching stories. There's also I've included some poems by a mother who wrote a poem uh, trying to explain to her child why her why her. Uh, the father was no longer around for a while, trying to explain what, what, prison, what prison meant. And a, a poem by a man named Joseph Dole, who's, who did more than 10 years in solitary confinement in Illinois, and who's actually become a scholar and has published a book on mass incarceration, but he wrote a poem about what it's like to be in solitary.
0: It seems that there was a time in this country when some of these voices were heard, when there was a real social movement in the United States in the 1960s and into the 1970s. And I was struck by the polling that you bring up uh, in the book that that back in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s, uh, belief was was much lower in terms of faith in the ethics of the police uh, and, and support for the death penalty. Uh, that even into the 80, early '80s, uh, the majority of Americans believed unemployment was the leading cause of crime. I, what do Americans think causes crime now? First of all, uh, and and how are these trends faring?
1: Well, I think I think we've now come full circle, and the majority of people think that people commit crimes because of bad individual decisions, and somehow certain people are more flawed in character and have a propensity for making these bad decisions. And, of course, that's a very racialized view. But I found even in prison that a lot of people had individualized their case to say that, well, I'm here because I made a bad decision. And there was much less of a tendency to think, who's in prison? When we look around in a prison yard, we find that the majority of the people in a state like California, the majority of people in prison are Latino and and uh, African-American, very different from the overall population of the state. But there's little kind of, you know, kind of collective awareness of this. And in the 1980s, there was a big campaign, largely driven by Ronald Reagan, but certainly not him alone, to shape this war on crime and to re-examine the causes behind crime and to re-examine the, le- the legitimacy of the law. So, in the 1960s and 70s, we found that people began to question the justness of certain laws, the justness of racially segrega- racial segregation laws, the justness of laws against homosexual activity, and so forth. All of this precipitated a questioning of the, of the law, and the Reagan campaign and the war on drugs was about once again criminalizing people who use drugs, criminalizing a model of a thug, a gangbanger, and so forth, which became a young black male, and we began to see media images put out, and an acceleration of the reporting of crime on the news, all of this about showing these evil individuals as perpetuators of crime. And that has has kept its popularity and been the sort of popular base for sustaining the expansion of prisons and jails and police
0: powers. And, and that continued, uh, if I'm not mistaken, and you write about it in the book, uh, that uh, escalating coverage of crime in the absence of any actual increase in crime it, through the 1990s uh, and the crime bill of 1994 uh, of President Clinton with the support of Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden and other people who would like to run this country in the future uh, it is, is cited in your book and, and in every similar study I've seen uh, as critical in this advance of mass incarceration? Uh, has, it, has it been a, a partisan or a bipartisan development? And, and what was the significance of that particular law?
1: Well, it's definitely been a bipartisan development. And in fact, the prison population grew more during the Clinton years than it did during the Reagan years. And the, that particular law just poured billions of dollars into, into prison expansion. And subsequent legislation under the Clinton administration also began the, the policy of denying civil rights to people with felony convictions. So we began to see policies that denied people with drug convictions access to public housing access to food stamps access to any kinds of public benefits and this um, has enhanced the stigma and made it very difficult for people to avoid ending up back in prison once they're released fortunately there's now been quite a bit of pushback on that in the last three or four years and a number of states have pulled back from enforcing food stamp bans, Texas being the most recently uh, recent state to change. But there's still a lot of places where we have people banned for life from access to these public benefits, even to the point where if a person is released from prison and their mother is living in public housing, they can't live with them if they have a drug conviction. So this seems to be a situation that's simply setting people up to end up back in prison.
0: And from voting uh, in, in some states, if, if that might have any impact on those policies. Uh,
1: Absolutely. It, that's,
0: that, that's a very big
1: one. And in 2012, almost 6 million people were den- denied access to voting uh, because of a felony conviction. Once again, we're seeing some changes being made. Virginia recently has relaxed their very strict laws, which previously banned anyone with a felony conviction
0: from voting for life. Maybe the maybe the governor's conviction will uh, change their minds even further here here in here in Virginia. Uh, that's right. We want him to be able to vote, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Thus far, the Supreme Court's keeping him out from behind bars. Uh, the the trends in some cases seem positive. Uh, the, the state after state eliminating the death penalty uh, and uh, decisions in a number of states uh, to scale back indefinite solitary confinement, including a recent victory on that in in California with just uh, a few minutes left what what happened in in that case and do these uh portend uh, a general trend away from mass incarceration
1: Well, I think it's too early to say we have a general trend away from mass incarceration, but we certainly have a a heightened awareness of the issue, and we have a heightened level of action at the community level around this. And so the recent uh, decision that you're talking about, the recent court decision, basically reversed the policy of the state of California, which has held somewhere on the order of 8,000 people in solitary confinement, sometimes for up to 40 years, and this reversed that decision and said that they couldn't keep people in without a clear-cut reason, without a clear-cut instance of being able to prove that they were a threat to people. Many people were being held there simply for possessing what the guards might have considered to be subversive literature or have um, alleged Connection to gangs, with no real proof being brought being brought forward, and these are people that were being kept in cells twenty three, often twenty four hours a day, cells with no windows, never being allowed any human contact, um, no telephone calls, and so forth. So basically, this decision has said that California cannot continue to do this, and this decision is largely the result of the action of people who were held in solitary confinement in the. In the secure housing unit at Pelican Bay State Prison, uh, people staged three hunger strikes, and supporters in the community, their family members, lawyers, other sympathizers, have put forward petitions to the court to stop this practice, and this is a result of that joint action forcing the courts and the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation to stop this inhumane policy, which is a total violation
0: of international law. It's very good to hear. I know RootsAction.org, where I work, uh, had people emailing decision makers uh, on this and are doing the same in other states, uh, and I hope it's part of a growing trend. Uh, is is it possible that, that a movement is going to develop for abolition? I mean, can we envision uh, converting those $200 million facilities into something useful, <laughs> and, and if so, what? And, and what what can people do to, to get involved and help?
1: I think there's a range of, of activities and actions going on across the country. Um, one of the most interesting ones, perhaps, has been a Ban the Box movement, which has been... Uh, uh, has won victories in over 40 municipalities and states to get the question about criminal background off the off employment applications, and that's something that's been driven largely by formerly incarcerated people and their loved ones. There's also been a lot of action around around drug laws, particularly in New York, an organization called the Drug Policy Alliance has gotten a lot of reduction of, of pr- prosecution of people with drug offenses, and that has led to an enormous reduction in the in, in prisons. They've actually closed 11 prisons in the state of New York. I think it's important to recognize that we need two things. We need legislative change. We need sentencing reform. We need to cut back on on uh, excessive sentences for crimes. And we need the closure of prisons and jails. We cannot impact this without the closure of prisons and jails. But secondly, we need the reinvestment of the funds that were going into corrections into the kinds of things you've talked about, you know, re- repurposing prisons and jails, if that's possible, but also building up Facilities and communities, mental health facilities, substance abuse facilities, job training programs, and so forth in these communities that have been affected by by mass incarceration. So I think there's a lot of action going on. People are moving around the issues of pertaining to women prisoners. People are m- moving around issues pertaining to getting people out on with no cash bail. There's just a range of activities going on in almost every community. And I think anyone who's concerned with this can find something to do in their community to take action to stop the expansion of the carceral state and expansion of jails and
0: prisons. James Kilgore, author of Understanding Mass Incarceration, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio.
1: Thank you very much for having me, David. It's been a pleasure.
0: This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by...